the first degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. The first degree. These things are supposed to happen in movies, not in real life. Michelle came into work and told my mom and was like, listen to this, it's crazy. Like my daughter, her neighbor went missing. Like, this is crazy. Everyone's looking for her. Welcome to The First Degree, the true crime podcast that you might end up on. My name is Jack Fanick, and I'm sitting here with Alexis Linkletter and Billy Jensen, and it is officially February. How do you guys feel? Weirded out that it's here so soon? Yeah. I mean, how do you feel from the dry January? Oh, um, I feel cleansed of my sins. Oh. Yeah, yeah yes. absolutely. I think we're all better now. Yeah, we better we were, people. We reversed, we reversed it. Everything that you've done bad in your life, <laughs> out Basically, the window. moral yeah. Benjamin Button. I yes. love it. I love that for you guys. You sure needed it, you know? <laughs> Seriously. Um, what day is it today, Billy? Today is February 2nd. And you know what? There's, there's a few here that are interesting, but it is Groundhog's Day. It is. Well, I think that February, they're really ramping up the days. Like nobody wanted a day in January. No. And now they're like, they're coming. They're coming now. Yes. That's right. So there's, there, there's Groundhog Day. But also, here's the thing hedgehogs got in and hedgehogs are like no this is hedgehog day so there's a fight a rivalry i don't think the hedgehogs are winning because i think we all know this as as groundhogs day hedgehogs are pretty cute though they're so cute they're so cute especially on tiktok you go down that rabbit hole of hedgehogs (laughs) they're so so stinking cute with little hats oh my gosh you go down the hedgehog hole or a rabbit hole (laughs) ah the hedgehog hole yeah i love it any other good days billy uh, it's crepe day too. I mean, but I, I think it, I really want to concentrate on the groundhog versus hedgehog though. Sure. That's fair. Can't say no to a good crepe though. Mm-mm. Mm-mm. All right. Well, that is enough of that. So let's turn down the lights and turn up your anxiety because this could be you. Trigger warning for self-harm, suicide, and crimes against children. So we are all familiar with the term emo kid, and I am obviously the resident emo in the first degree camp. But for those of you that don't know, Dictionary.com describes emo as a fan of emo music, especially a person who is overly sensitive, emotional, and full of angst, or who adopts a certain lifestyle characterized by dyed black hair, tight t-shirts, and skinny jeans, etc. And I will add in probably getting all of your clothes at Hot Topic. And emo kids were usually stereotyped as being passionately into music, sometimes a little bit offbeat, and they always had a cold black heart. But even though there are a lot of dramatics and dark themes surrounding emo kids, the majority of them were kind, harmless people. So what happens when the typically innocuous behaviors from an emo kid turn sinister? We begin today's case on October 21st of 2009. The top 10 music charts were full of pop hits, like Party in the USA by Miley Cyrus and I Got a Feeling by the Black Eyed Peas. Since Halloween was right around the corner, movies like Paranormal Activity and Zombieland were making bank in the theaters. And President Barack Obama became the fourth president ever to be awarded the Nobel Peace Prize. He won for his extraordinary efforts to strengthen international diplomacy and cooperation between peoples. The setting for today's case is greater Missouri, because we'll be navigating between a few Missouri cities as this story unfolds. A little bit about Missouri. In 1821, Missouri was the 24th state added to the Union. And today, the whole state has a population of around 6 million people, which is 2 million less people than New York City alone. But we're going to talk about the Lake of the Ozarks, which is located in the middle of Missouri. In terms of the lake, at the time of its construction in 1931, it was the largest man-made lake in the United States. And while it was originally created to provide hydroelectric power, it quickly became a tourist destination. The other primary location in today's story is Jefferson City, or Jeff City for short, which is around 60 miles northeast of Lake of the Ozarks. So before we get into the crux of today's case, you need to meet our first degree, Caitlin. 
And there are a few things to know about Caitlin and her upbringing to give us context for this story. So when Caitlin was young, her mom went to prison for drug-related charges. So Caitlin and her younger siblings were raised by their grandmother in Missouri. And eventually, Caitlin's mom got out, and taking her sobriety seriously and wanting a fresh start, she moved to the Lake of the Ozarks with another woman who she'd been incarcerated with. And that woman's name was Michelle Bustamante. Caitlin would come to know Michelle and her kids pretty well and explains why her mom and Michelle moved to the Ozarks in the first place. They bonded because they were two addicts trying to get their kids back, and they were just trying to go into the world, like, and kind of get away from the addiction. A lot of the women that get out of prison, they go to Lake of the Ozarks because they had, at the time, it was a bustling town, I guess, outside of the summertime. The city Caitlin lived in with her grandmother was about 45 minutes away from the Ozarks. And as soon as her mom had a job and housing lined up, Caitlin and her siblings began staying with her on weekends. Her mom's new BFF, Michelle, had four kids including a daughter named Alyssa, who was the same age as Caitlin. So because their moms were friends, Caitlin and her siblings started spending time with Michelle's kids, who they had a lot in common with because they too lived with their grandmother and would visit their mom on the weekends. The families grew close, and Caitlin's friendship with Alyssa developed and would ebb and flow as the years went on. Caitlin's mom and Michelle both got a job at a place called Pinnacle. They worked together and they worked cubicle buddies. They smoked, so they went out on smoke break because they had nobody except for their drug buddies. And coming out of prison, they were just like, hey, let's stick together and do good. Michelle's children came to visit every weekend, just like Caitlin and her siblings did. And all of them started to get really close. Caitlin found herself spending more and more time with Alyssa. Because Alyssa was the same age as me, my mom would be like, hey, why don't you come over this weekend like Alyssa and her siblings are going to be here. Or, you know, Alyssa has some questions for you. Why don't you add her on MySpace? Like, you guys like the same things? Because we did. We liked grunge bands. And we were like emo, you know, like the eyeliner and lip piercings and stuff like that. Caitlin and Alyssa were friends for years. And sometimes they were super close. And sometimes they had friction, which is super normal and not uncommon with young teens. But in October of 2009, their friendship was back on track and they were as close as ever. And this was ideal for Caitlin because Halloween was one of her favorite holidays. And she was super excited to partake in the festivities. We were friends by then again. So in October, I was pretty excited because I was like, oh, we're going to go to the haunted trail ride and we're going to do this. And we spent the summer together and she was fine. Caitlin and Alyssa had been engaging in some autumnal activities like visiting haunted houses and haunted hayrides. And Caitlin was looking forward to doing more of the same in the upcoming weekend. But on Wednesday, the 21st, Caitlin learned that the fun plans she had for that weekend would have to be put on hold. Why? Well, because a nine-year-old little girl named Elizabeth Olton, who was from Jeff City, Missouri, had gone missing. And Jeff City is the same place where Alyssa and her siblings lived with their grandmother. In fact, Elizabeth Olton lived just a few houses away from Alyssa. Elizabeth went missing in the Jeff City area, so it wasn't near Lake of the Ozarks. But my mom was like, oh my gosh, Michelle came to work today and she's really concerned because Alyssa's neighbor's like missing. I need to talk to you girls and tell you, like, after dark, you don't go outside and play. And in the meantime, we were just all freaked out because my mom was like, yeah, Alyssa won't be visiting because everyone's trying to look for her, for this little girl. And I was just like, okay. And at that point, everyone knew, like, the news and everything because it was in Missouri. It was talking about this little girl, like, going missing. What happened to Elizabeth Olton? Where was she? And could someone have wanted to hurt her? Well, to answer that, you know the drill. We got to go back. Caitlin met Alyssa when they were both 12 years old, somewhere in the ballpark of 2007, and they hit it off. I was around the same age as Alyssa. We liked the same things. We liked grunge bands, and we were like emo, you know, like the eyeliner and lip piercings and stuff like that. So that's kind of how it 
started. Caitlin really liked Alyssa, despite the fact that she would do some puzzling things from time to time. Here's an example. When I first met her, we were swimming. It's me, my younger sister, Kelsey, and then I have a younger sister, Kylie. We were all swimming, and she kept trying to, like, get my younger sister, Kelsey, to come out and, like, play in the water with her. And I'm very protective of my siblings, but she would be like, hey, come out, like, let's play. And she kept trying to dunk her. And I was like, uh, I would say, like, it's kind of one of those where the hair on the back of my neck stood up. She was holding her under the water for an extensive time. And so finally I was like, all right, Kelsey, like, come on, let's go, like, get out of the water because they started getting mad. And she finally did. She got her water and she started playing with Alyssa's twin brothers. Caitlin then noticed another strange thing that Alyssa was doing. She kept jumping off of this diving board and she kept like, would jump on it and the water, I guess like it would splash her, it would hurt her because she would belly flop. And she just kept doing that over and over. And I just remember telling my mom, like, I don't understand why she's belly flopping if she does not like it. I don't understand, like, can I don't know why she's not stopping. Eh, maybe Alyssa was a bit odd. But these girls were 12. I think we were all pretty weird at that age. But once they got done swimming, like, she was fine with me. We played card games, and we talked about our likes of fans and piercings, and I added her on MySpace when MySpace was a big thing. As Caitlin spent more time with Alyssa, the more she got to know her, and she learned about what her early life was like. Alyssa Daylene Bustamante was born on January 28, 1994, in California to parents 15-year-old Michelle and 18-year-old Caesar. And being teenage parents was difficult for Michelle and Caesar, obviously, and they were just not equipped. Both Michelle and Caesar struggled with alcohol and drug abuse, and Alyssa unfortunately witnessed a lot of this. And on top of seeing her parents use drugs, Alyssa often witnessed her dad physically abusing her mother. And plus, Caesar and Michelle were often evicted, which meant they were always moving, leaving Alyssa without a stable home. In 1996, Michelle and Caesar left California and moved to Missouri, where they eventually broke up. Later, when Alyssa was around five years old, Michelle gave birth to a set of twin boys, Nathaniel and Joseph. Three years after that, she had a daughter named Emma. It's unclear to us who the father of Alyssa's siblings are, but we know it's not Caesar. In 2000, Caesar would then get a 10-year prison sentence, stemming from three felony assault convictions. And luckily, even when Caesar was in jail, he maintained a relationship with Alyssa through letters and phone calls. Meanwhile, Michelle was raising four children while struggling with drug and alcohol abuse. Michelle's parents, Karen and Gary, tried to help out with their grandchildren as much as they could, but nothing they did really seemed to make a difference. So in 2002, when Alyssa was eight years old, Karen and Gary filed for and won full custody of all four of their grandchildren. So they moved into this newly purchased home located just over four acres in St. Martin, a rural area 10 minutes outside of the heart of Jefferson City, Missouri. So while Karen and Gary and their four grandkids had a fresh start, Alyssa's mom, Michelle, continued to struggle and ended up with three convictions for drunk driving and marijuana possession. And that's what led Michelle to prison, where she met her first degree Caitlin's mom. Alyssa and Caitlin came from very similar circumstances, so even though Alyssa could be strange sometimes, Caitlin really empathized with her. We were the same age. We hung out. Our parents kind of went through the same thing. Caitlin and Alyssa also both lived with their grandparents as their mothers figured their lives out. And that's in addition to other things that they had in common, like music, clothes, and emo hairstyles and makeup. And we're actually looking at a picture of a few pictures of Alyssa right now. And she's kind of like the stereotypical emo kid. The first picture that I'm looking at is taken from the MySpace angle with the flash on that it's so bright that it almost covers your entire face and you look sort of like Voldemort. Like it mm -hmm. takes your name out of the picture with the swoopy haircut. She's wearing some sort of a Invader Zim t-shirt and has all the bracelets and stuff. Like everything that she's wearing is pretty much like Hot Topic to the max. An eyeliner. Eyeliner. And just, I mean... If you look up emo kid on Google, yeah. that picture might come up. Absolutely. And there's a second photo here of her wearing Nightmare Before Christmas sweater. Yes. Jack Skellington That's was right. such a staple in the emo world. 
Okay, so the friendship between these two girls continued, and one weekend when Caitlin and Alyssa were both visiting their moms in the Ozarks, Caitlin showed up with a really fun new accessory. I went to the store in my hometown, and they had, like, magnets, and then you put could put it, like, on a fake nose piercing or a fake lip piercing to see if you liked it. You remember those fake magnetic piercings, right? Of course you do. Caitlin got one of those for her lip. And when Caitlin showed up with it that weekend, Alyssa was really jealous. Well, I visited and I wore that. And Alyssa was like, oh my gosh, like, I wish I had one. I wish this, I wish that. And I was just like, oh yeah, like, and at the time, because I was, I didn't tell her that it was fake. I was just like, yeah, like, it's pretty cool. My grandma let me have one. And she's like, oh, my grandma's, you know, a bitch. Like, she wouldn't let me have it because she says that's like the devil. So Alyssa desperately wanted a lip ring like her friend. So her mom, who was best friends with Alyssa's mom, asked Caitlin to pick one up for her. My mom was like, hey, can you go to the same store and I will give you money for when you come down this weekend or come up this weekend, can you go and buy like a fake lip piercing? And I was like, okay. So I bought it and she's like, Alyssa was saying how cool it was, how she wants one. So that next weekend, Caitlin was excited to give it to Alyssa, thinking that she'd be excited. But that wasn't exactly the case. I brought it to her. I gave it to her. And she flipped out. Like, she got so angry. She started cussing at her mom, yelling at her mom. She was like, no, I want a real one. And she came up to me and she's like, like, you have a real one. I was like, no, like, I don't have a real one. It's just fake for right now. And she, that's like instantly her whole attitude changed towards me. Just like a switch flipped, Alyssa turned ice cold. She became like a shitty, completely shitty person after she found out that the lip piercing was fake. She just was like, oh, you're a fake person. You're not really grunge. I would try to talk to her. She wouldn't talk to me. She would just kind of look at me and like glare at me the whole time. It was around October that year. We went to a couple like... I guess, haunted trails because it's around my birthday. I love haunted stuff and going to haunted rides. And and so we went and somebody came out. It was a chainsaw and she's like, God, I wish it was real. It was right around this time that Caitlin started to notice other odd things about Alyssa, which became evident through things that she would share with her. And here's an example. She would always get mad at her mom. And then she'd be like, God, like, I just wish, like... I wish my mom wasn't here and don't you wish that? And I would be like, no, like I don't wish, I'm glad my mom's here. She got out of, she just got out of prison. Like I haven't seen her in a while. And she just was kind of, would be like, oh, okay, you're right. Like I love my mom. So she kind of like mirrored what I felt in a way by emotions. Alyssa continued to exhibit behavior that disturbed Caitlin. She just didn't care, would say like the weirdest things we talk about blood all the time and talked about how she cut herself all the time. And for me, I'd be like, oh, I hate school. Like, I don't want to go to school. But for her, she'd be like, oh, I hate my life. Like, look, I cut myself. And she'd be like, don't you do that? And I'd be like, no. And then she'd be like, you're not real grunge then because you have a fake lip piercing and you don't cut yourself. And I was just like, oh, okay. So I told my mom, I was like, she's kind of weird. My mom was like, yeah, she is kind of, she's kind of weird. I think she's just kind of going through a hard time. So Alyssa had changed, but despite her strange behavior, Caitlin continued to make an effort to still be friends with her for the sake of her mom's relationship with Michelle. And by October 21st, their friendship was more or less back on track, which brings us to the same weekend that Elizabeth Olton went missing. I've never met Elizabeth before. I've only met Alyssa. And that's where it was just kind of one of those weekdays where Michelle came into work and told my mom and was like, listen to this. It's crazy. Like my daughter, her neighbor went missing. Like this is crazy. Everyone's looking for her. Nine-year-old Elizabeth was the youngest of five kids. She was in fourth grade at Pioneer Trails Elementary School. She was described as the epitome of a girly girl. Her room was pink and purple and had Care Bears and Bratz dolls everywhere. She loved to dress up. She loved puzzles. She loved baking cookies with her mom, Patty. And her taste in music included Hannah Montana and, of course, Taylor Swift. Elizabeth and her family lived five houses away from Alyssa's grandparents and would often play with Alyssa's younger brother, 
and sister. And actually, Alyssa had two brothers, so she'd play with both of them. And if you're looking at their neighborhood from an aerial view, hypothetically, or on Google Earth, you could see that this area is very rural. And when the Olsen kids and the Bustamante kids would play with each other, they wouldn't use the streets to walk to each other's houses. They would cut through neighbors' yards and cut through the woods. And it was a mixture of, like, these dense woods and these grassy areas. Now, the day Elizabeth vanished was just like any other Wednesday. She went to school, and when she got home, she was doing her homework and practicing her lines for a school play she was in. And then around 5 p.m., Alyssa's little sister, Emma, knocked on the door. And she asked Elizabeth if she could come play. And her mom said no at first, but eventually agreed to let her stay out for an hour if she promised to be home by 6 for dinner. And Elizabeth promised, and off the girls went. Six o'clock came and went with no sign of Elizabeth, which was unlike her. Her mom, Patty, was worried. She yelled outside for her daughter, but she didn't hear or see anything. And when it got dark at 6.30 p.m. and Elizabeth still wasn't home, Patty knew something was up. Elizabeth was afraid of the dark and the woods, so she wouldn't want to be out there this late. So Patty frantically called Elizabeth's cell phone, but she got no response. She then called Emma's house and spoke with her grandma, Karen, who said Elizabeth hadn't been at their place. So at this point, Patty calls the police. Within 15 minutes, officers were at Patty's door. Then they went over to Alyssa's grandma's house to search for Elizabeth. But there was no sign of Elizabeth. As far as Emma knew, Elizabeth had gone home in time for dinner and had no explanation for where she was. The fire department and additional police were called in to help the search. They had a huge amount of ground to cover, 60 acres of dense forest. It kept getting later, colder, and darker by the minute, and still there was no sign of Elizabeth. By 10 p.m. that evening, there were hundreds of people out scouring the woods for Elizabeth. Meanwhile, authorities decided to do an emergency ping on Elizabeth's cell phone. They received several pings from the phone, but they were all located in the general area of the woods. This technology just wasn't precise enough, so this didn't help at all with narrowing this area down. The search for Elizabeth intensified the next day, so overnight she's missing. Hundreds of people joined. There were horses, helicopters, and ATVs. The terrain was not easy to traverse. There were brush piles, hills, and rocks to comb through. And to make matters worse, it was raining, and it kept raining. But none of this stopped people from showing up to help search for the little girl. Eventually, the Missouri Highway Patrol and FBI even joined in on the search for Elizabeth. Checkpoints were set up around the area, and every car trying to go in or out would be stopped and searched. Police pulled info for all the sexual offenders in the area as well. And while the police hadn't yet found Elizabeth, they did find something really strange. There was a suspicious hole in the woods behind the Bustamante and Olton houses. And this hole, oddly, was in the shape of a rectangle, and it was about three feet by five feet. It had distinct shovel marks that went less than a foot into the ground, so it was really, really shallow. And authorities assumed the person who dug the hole had tried to dig down further, but was met with too many roots, so they just gave up. At the same time, authorities began questioning all the other kids in the neighborhood that knew Elizabeth. The police then swung back to Alyssa's because they hadn't had the chance to speak with her yet. While they were there, they spoke to Alyssa, and they spoke to Emma again. And this time, Emma shared some details that she hadn't revealed the first time police spoke with her. So this time, Emma said that she and Elizabeth played in the driveway until around 6 p.m. when Elizabeth said that she had to go home. Emma stood on top of a big rock in her driveway so she could watch Elizabeth walk home, but she didn't end up watching her go the whole way because instead she went back to playing. And as she was playing, Emma's hair tie got stuck in a nearby thorn bush, and when she went to go get it out, she got caught up in all of the thorns. Emma yelled for Alyssa to come help her, and Alyssa came from inside the house. And when Alyssa showed up at the bush, Emma noticed a few spots of blood on Alyssa's pants. So she asked about them, and Alyssa said that she had just gotten her period. Alyssa then made Emma promise not to tell anybody about the blood. When the police spoke with Alyssa, they asked her about this. And they also wanted to know where Alyssa had been on the day Elizabeth went missing. So she told them that she'd skipped school and gone to her boyfriend's house. And when they asked her if she'd seen Elizabeth that day, she said no. Agents then took Alyssa out to the suspicious hole in the woods, the one they had found that was rectangular shaped. And they asked if she knew anything about it. And Alyssa admitted that yes, she did. She was the one who dug it. When asked why, Alyssa said, I just like digging holes. 
and she added that she liked to bury dead animals that she would find. This odd thing about digging holes raised a little bit of a red flag for investigators, because that's weird, right? In fact, it was so suspicious that it prompted investigators to request a search of Alyssa's room. And during that search, they found something chilling. When police entered the room of Alyssa Bustamante, they made some startling discoveries. On the walls, there were numerous writings and drawings, some in marker and some in blood. A poem written in both marker and blood was found on one wall. I cut to focus when my brain is racing. I cut to make physical what I feel inside. I cut to see blood because I like it. I don't like to cut, but I can't give it up. Written in blood on another wall were the words, I heart you XOXO. And drawn in blood nearby was a drawing of a person with slash marks across their face, with the name Emma written to the side. And as investigators looked around the room, they found Alyssa's diary, and they started skimming through it. There were multiple entries to read through, many of which were references to suicidal thoughts. And they were shocked to read that she'd been struggling with the urge to hurt others, including one particularly alarming entry about burning a house down with a family trapped inside. Obviously, these are thoughts she's having. One of the many disturbing entries was written on October 14th, just a week before Elizabeth went missing. Alyssa wrote that she couldn't use her phone because the charger broke, and this meant she couldn't talk to anyone about how she was feeling inside. She wrote, If I don't talk about it, I bottle it up. And when I explode, someone's going to die. It was actually the very last entry in the diary that unnerved investigators the most, and the entry was from October 21st, the day that Elizabeth went missing. The last sentence read, quote, I gotta go to church now, lol. Everything else was scratched out with a pen. In these moments, police wondered if 15-year-old Alyssa Bustamante could be the reason Elizabeth Olton was missing. So they needed to do a deep dive into who Alyssa was. In some ways, Alyssa appeared to be a normal teenager. She was a sophomore at Jefferson City High School, where she rarely missed class. She didn't get into trouble. She was a bright student, but she didn't always apply herself in class like her teachers had hoped. But still, her grades never dipped below a B. Despite her decent performance in school, Alyssa seemed to struggle emotionally. One indication of that was that she began cutting herself when she was in eighth grade. And two years prior, when she was 13, Alyssa had attempted to take her own life by swallowing a bottle of Tylenol. When she was found, she had hundreds of cuts on her arms, and she'd also carved the word hate into one of her arms. She was saved after her grandma found her, and she was rushed by ambulance to have her stomach pumped. She spent the next 10 days in a psychiatric hospital, where she was prescribed the antidepressant Prozac. She also received treatment for mood swings and self-harm. Despite going on antidepressants, Alyssa continued to self-harm. And if you recall something that Caitlin said earlier, Alyssa was open about her cutting, and she didn't really try to conceal it at all. Investigators probed the mental health professionals who treated Alyssa and asked if they thought that she was capable of harming a little girl like Elizabeth. They said they didn't think she was involved because she had never, quote, expressed any desire to harm people other than herself. Alyssa's friends were questioned, and that included her bestie, Jennifer. And what she said greatly contradicted what Alyssa's doctors told them. Jennifer told the police that over the last few years, Alyssa would tell her things like, I wonder what it would feel like to kill someone. Then, on Alyssa's 15th birthday, Jennifer recalled something else Alyssa had said. I just wonder what it would be like just to kill someone, see the life just drain out of someone. I wonder what it would feel like, that type of power, to take that away from someone. And the last thing Jennifer said would be of extreme value to the investigation. She recalled that on the evening of October 21st, or 22nd, she wasn't sure, but Alyssa had called her and said that she'd done something very bad. After that, Alyssa asked Jennifer if she heard about the little girl that was missing. When Jennifer asked why she was bringing it up, Alyssa said it was all supposed to be a game. Then she said it a few more times before the conversation ended. Jennifer had no idea what to make of what her friend had just said to her. Investigators then learned that Alyssa had a boyfriend named Dustin. 
So naturally, with all these red flags popping up, they wanted to speak with him as well. He told them that one day when he and Alyssa were watching a movie, she asked him if he knew what it felt like to kill someone. Dustin told her no. Then they went back to watching the movie. Investigators asked if he found that comment suspicious, and Dustin said because Alyssa was emo, she thought about that kind of stuff, so it wasn't a weird conversation. So, Jack, tell me, is this what emo is? Because it's interesting to me that the boyfriend would say that. Like, that's what he thinks it is. Yeah. I mean, like I said, kind of in the intro, you know, the emo kids were kind of dark and brooding and angsty and all that kind of stuff. But having homicidal thoughts, I would never consider as just being like a normal emo kid kind of a thing. So that obviously has a lot deeper meaning towards it than just being emo. Yeah. And and prior to that, you know, as as an elder goth, you're an elder emo and I'm an elder goth, <laughs> it would be, yeah, very much, no, you, you want to sit in a room by yourself and listen to records. You don't want to talk about that kind of stuff. No, absolutely not. No. Okay. Well, back to our story. So when investigators looked at Alyssa's social media presence, they found even more cause for concern. So we're looking at some of these pictures that they found on the social media. And it's funny because I think the pictures out of everything are what does it doesn't really concern me thinking about Nemo Kid. Right. Like some of these pictures, there's one of her doing it's called the raw hand signal kind of a thing. And she's yeah, like, like you're blood. a tiger. Like yeah, a tiger. Like you're like raw. And then you have she has like blood dripping from her mouth. Yeah. And then crazy eyeliner. I like have pictures that are almost identical to this. So (laughs) those pictures don't concern me whatsoever. There is a weird picture of her holding a knife, which seems to be like she's insinuating that she's going to stab somebody. That one is concerning, but the other ones are just like your average typical emo pictures, which I thought was very interesting. Totally. So Then investigators found Alyssa's YouTube channel, where she listed her hobbies as killing people and cutting. And she'd uploaded several disturbing videos, including one titled, Idiots Getting Electrocuted by Electric Fence. And this video showed Alyssa touching an electric cattle fence before cutting to a screen with a text that reads, this is where it gets good, where my brothers get hurt. Then the video shows Alyssa coaxing one of her younger brothers to touch the fence. He ends up touching it and then falls to the ground while Alyssa laughs. As investigators conducted their deep dive into Alyssa's social media accounts, other law enforcement were continuing to analyze evidence found in Alyssa's room. Specifically, they were trying to use a black light to decipher the scribbled out portion of Alyssa's final journal entry, which she'd made on October 21st, the day Elizabeth went missing. Remember, that was the one that said, got to go to church, LOL, at the end of it. And after a few attempts, they finally had success. And here's what was written. The entry read, I just fucking killed someone. I strangled them and slit their throat and stabbed them and now they're dead. I don't know how to feel at the moment. And it says ATM, abbreviation. It was amazing. A-H, amazing. As soon as you get over the, oh my God, I can't do this feeling, it's pretty enjoyable. I'm kind of nervous and shaky though right now. Okay, I got to go to church now. Ellipses, LOL. In the late morning hours of October 23rd, two days after Elizabeth went missing, Alyssa was brought into the station for a formal interview with Sergeant David Rice. Her grandma was also present in the interview room with Alyssa. Sergeant Rice asked Alyssa to walk him through what she did on the day that Elizabeth went missing. Alyssa calmly told Sergeant Rice that she got home from school at around 3.30. Then she hung out in her room for a while. At around 4.30 or 5, she went for a walk in the wooded area by her house. She was going to take Emma with her, but she ended up ditching her because she's annoying, in her words. Alyssa walked around in the woods for around an hour, then went back to her room. At some point, she heard yelling outside, and that's when she found Emma stuck in the thorn bush. Emma asked about the blood on her pants, and Alyssa explained that it was her period blood. Then she told Emma not to tell anyone. Alyssa then said that she was getting ready for church when one of her brothers pounded on her door and asked where Elizabeth was. Alyssa said she didn't know, and she continued to get ready. The family then went to a church activity between 7 and 8.15 p.m., and when they came home, there were police cars and searchers on their property. Alyssa went upstairs to shower, and when she was done, her grandpa told her that Elizabeth was missing. 
Next, Rice asked Alyssa to talk to him about the suspicious hole that they found in the woods, the one that was a perfect size and shape for a child's grave. So Alyssa tells Rice that she likes being outside, but she gets bored easily. So, quote, digging holes is just something to do. And as you can imagine, Rice found it super hard to believe that a 15-year-old girl likes to spend her time digging random grave-shaped holes. You just like to dig holes? And I like to climb trees. Okay. Um, oh, and I bury um, dead animals that I find because I believe it's respectful to them. Okay. Sergeant Rice continued to probe Alyssa. I really don't think she would run away because she's nine. And the way they've been searching for two days, never got any sign of her. So I, I think that maybe someone kidnapped her or something. It's a terrible thing. But I, I don't know what else to assume. What type of person do you think would do this sort of thing to a nine-year-old girl? Um, a sick person. Whenever we find out what happened to her, if somebody did something to her, mm-hmm. what do you think should happen to them? I think they should get uh, convicted. At this point, the subject of Alyssa's diary came up. And at that moment, her disposition changed drastically. Rice asked Alyssa if she thought the FBI went through her diary, and she said, probably. Alyssa added that the only thing she could think of that would be inside the diary were embarrassing things that she'd written about herself. It was then that Sergeant Rice confronted Alyssa with the scribbled out portion of her diary that they were able to decipher. And Alyssa just sat there in silence. And then Rice just came out with it and demanded to know where Elizabeth was. And Alyssa just continued to say that she didn't know. And there's something we haven't mentioned yet. Besides Alyssa's grandmother being in the room, Alyssa had also been assigned a juvenile advocate to be there and chaperone the interview. And this advocate's name was Toby. And at this point, Toby spoke up and encouraged Alyssa to tell the truth and tell Sergeant Rice what she knows. Sergeant Rice continued to push Alyssa for the truth. Let's start at the beginning. Is this something that was planned out, or was this just an accident? It was an accident. Alyssa put her head in her hands and started crying as Rice asked her to tell him the truth about what happened on October 21st. And finally, she broke. Alyssa told Rice that she got home from school at around 3.30 and went for a walk in the woods. That's where she found Elizabeth playing. They started messing around, and Elizabeth just fell and died. Alyssa didn't know what to do, so she panicked and burned Elizabeth's body. Rice asked how she burned the body, and Alyssa said that she grabbed a bunch of wood and started a fire. When she was done burning Elizabeth's body, she put the ashes in a nearby creek and went home. Knowing how difficult it is to burn a body... Rice didn't believe a word Alyssa was telling him. He continued trying to get the truth out of her. How did she die? Nine-year-old girls don't just die. We were messing her out. Then she fell back and hit her head. Was her throat cut? Yeah. So in that audio you just heard, the woman who you heard screaming is Alyssa's grandmother, Karen distraught over Alyssa's admission. And Sergeant Rice remained focused on Alyssa and said, I think you tried to dig the hole, like I said, and you realized it was too hard to dig down that far. And right as Rice went on to say something else, Grandma Karen screamed, no, it'll never be okay from the hallway. So she's clearly emotionally unloading. And Alyssa, who's still in the interrogation room, can hear this. And she started crying after hearing the anguish in her grandmother's voice or because she's in trouble and got caught. Who knows? They knew you were going to kill her. And then you cut her throat. Is that what happened? Yes. At this point, Sergeant Rice urged Alyssa to tell him what really happened the day Elizabeth went missing. And Alyssa started talking. She said this time that when she got home, she went to her room for a bit 
And then at around 5.30, she grabbed a kitchen knife and put it in her waistband. Alyssa told Emma to go to the Olten house and get Elizabeth so they could play. Alyssa hid in the woods until Elizabeth and Emma walked by. Then Alyssa came out of the woods and talked to both girls. Then she told Emma to go home. Alyssa took Elizabeth by the hand and walked her into the woods. Elizabeth was scared of the woods, so Alyssa had to coax her by saying, I've got something really neat to show you. It's just a little bit further up here. Then, when they were near a creek, Alyssa came up behind Elizabeth and cut her neck and stabbed her twice in the chest. And it's just shocking to hear that a 15-year-old would do this, but as Alyssa's telling Sergeant Rice this, she again says that she burned Elizabeth's body. And again, he didn't believe her and urged her to tell the actual truth. Okay. Good. Slit her throat. I strangled her. <sighs> strangled her? Mm-hmm. You strangled her with your hands? Yes. Okay. Did she have an knife on you? Yes. Did you cut her throat at any time? Yes. Cut her throat afterwards? Mm-hmm. Okay, so you strangled her first until she was unconscious, dead, and then you slit her throat. Mm-hmm. And did you actually, did you stab her then? Mm-hmm. Did you do anything else to her? Okay. Alyssa continued, saying she buried Elizabeth's body in a second hole near the creek, not the one they found and had already asked her about before. Sergeant Rice then moved on and asked the question that we're all wondering about as we listen to this. Why? Why did you pick her? I don't know. Was there something about her? Did you just want to... Did you just want to know what it was like to kill someone? Yeah, I just wanted to go. Satisfied with a story that was more plausible, Sergeant Rice began making arrangements to have Alyssa bring them to Elizabeth's body. They returned to the area and walked a half a mile into the woods before they came to the creek where Alyssa said that the murder had happened. Then Alyssa showed Sergeant Rice exactly where she was. The hole Elizabeth was buried in was not a perfect rectangle like the one investigators had previously found. This one was round and looked more hastily dug. And as they were there, Alyssa continued to lay out what happened. I cut her throat and then stabbed her. You cut her throat and stabbed her. Where did you stab her? In her chest area. In her chest area? Yeah. In the front or in the back? Front. In the front. Okay. How many times? Twice, I believe. And dragged her into the hole. Dragged her into this hole over here. Okay. And when did you dig that hole? Friday. Okay. How did you cover her up? Did you have a shovel or no, something here? I just used my hands. Used your hands. Okay. And this is the hole over here. She's in her. How deep is that hole? It's not very deep. Sergeant Rice ended the interview there and took Alyssa back to the station. Next, Alyssa's boyfriend, Dustin, was interviewed again. He was reluctant to speak at first, but eventually caved. And he said that on the day after Elizabeth went missing, he stayed home sick from school. Alyssa skipped school that day and showed up at his place. And it was at that point that Alyssa confessed to what she had done. Then Dustin told her she had to leave, and that was the last communication he'd had with her. During this interview, Dustin said the following. Once you ever found out that I gave away information that got her locked up, when she, like, I have a family, and she comes and she finds out where I live because she's obsessed about it and kills everybody. What if she gets out on bail and she finds out a way how to get take off her ankle bracelet and she comes and kills me in my sleep and my mom. And then finds out where my sister lives and kills her. An autopsy was conducted on Elizabeth. But here's the thing, the results didn't coincide with Alyssa's story. Alyssa said Elizabeth had only been stabbed twice. But in fact, she'd been stabbed eight times in the chest. 
and she also had defensive wounds from the knife. She was conscious when she was being stabbed. Alyssa was arrested and charged with first-degree murder and was sent to a juvenile facility. She pleaded not guilty. When her friends and classmates found out that she'd been arrested, they were beside themselves. And her first-degree, Caitlin, was absolutely floored. Michelle was at work and with my mom, like, sitting right next to her when she got the phone call that Alyssa was involved. So after work, my mom called me and was like, hey, like, I need to talk to you. I hope you're okay because you'll probably see it on the news. And I was just like, okay. And she told me, she's like, so Alyssa was the one that that little girl that they were looking for, she was the one that murdered her. After my mom told me, I just like sat there and that's when you start to realize like that things just kind of make sense. It was really a shock because I was like, that's how close I was to a murder. I was a lot bigger than her and taller than her. But I was like, oh my gosh, like what if I turned my back, went to the bathroom or something, my mom wasn't paying attention and my little sister did go out there and play with her. So it was pretty shocking. The media coverage of the case was swift and extensive, and Alyssa's mom, Michelle, really felt the backlash. Michelle was getting bullied at work, and the managers were letting them, like, letting the other people be like, your daughter's a murderer, and, like, she had signs, like, left on her desk, and, like, why are you a druggie? And the media was, like, attacking her. So if you were to look up anything, it would say, like, Alyssa didn't have a good life because her mom was a drug addict. And it didn't talk about how, yes, she was, but she dropped out of school because she was pregnant. Like, it didn't talk about how she was trying, which is what I saw and which is what my mom saw, how she was trying to be a a good mom. Three weeks after Alyssa's arrest, she was transferred out of the juvenile facility. She would be charged as an adult, despite the fact that she was only 15 years old. Her trial was set for January 2012. And if convicted, she would face life without parole. While in custody, she went to a mental facility and underwent a psychological evaluation. And this was largely due to the fact that she was hurting herself and on suicide watch. There, the extent of Alyssa's self-harm was uncovered by doctors. She had more than 300 scars from cuts all over her body, and she had self-inflicted burns and bite marks. And she said that she didn't feel any pain when she would hurt herself. And as we said earlier, Alyssa had a history of trying to take her own life, and the doctors were made aware of that also. Alyssa also shared about the instability of her childhood while she was being evaluated. Notably, she also told doctors that she was in a dreamlike state when she killed Elizabeth, and that she sees her face in her nightmares. Alyssa was also found to be suffering from major depression, anxiety disorder, borderline personality disorder, and early signs of bipolar disorder. When her evaluations were through, Alyssa was sent back to jail to await trial. In the meantime, there was a lot of legal back and forth. Alyssa's attorney tried to get Alyssa's confession thrown out, alleging that Sergeant Rice used deceptive tactics, and also that Alyssa's advocate, that woman Toby, who was present at the time, acted inappropriately and interfered when Alyssa was being questioned. Alyssa's confession was a big part of this case. Fearing that it would be thrown out, the state offered Alyssa a plea deal. She could plead guilty to second-degree murder instead of possibly being found guilty of first-degree murder by the jury. She was facing life without parole for the first-degree charge. But with the second-degree charge, the judge could sentence her to as little as 10 years. So this was a good deal for her, and it's a deal that she took. And as part of the deal, Alyssa had to provide a full allocution. It was a very emotional time for the courtroom. Elizabeth's family already knew the details, but hearing them from the mouth of the murderer was completely different. Alyssa also addressed Elizabeth's family and said, I know words can never be enough, and they can never adequately describe how horribly I feel for all of this. I cannot even understand what you guys are going through, and I'm sorry for that. If I could give my life to bring her back, I would, and I'm sorry. 
Before the judge made a decision on Alyssa's sentence, Elizabeth's mother, Patty, got a chance to address Alyssa. Patty said, So much has been lost at the hands of this evil monster. Elizabeth was given a death sentence, and we were given a life sentence. I hate her. I hate everything about her. Then Patty said that Alyssa is not even human before the judge cut her off. The judge then sentenced Alyssa to life in prison with the possibility of parole plus 30 years to be served consecutively. More than 10 years have passed since Elizabeth Olton's senseless murder, but feelings about how close our first degree Caitlin was to her killer still linger. It just like made me get shivers all over my body to where I was just like, oh my God, like it could have been me. It could have been my sister's. It could have been her brother's. It could have been her little sister. And of course, there are only things that Caitlin can understand in hindsight. I really think there was something a lot worse going on with her. She didn't cry. Like, she didn't show any emotions. So looking back, I just think, like, about how close it was. If, what if I would have turned the eye? And, and what if I went inside and I left my little sister outside to play with her? Like, what if something happened? Like, what if she, like, you know, held her underwater and she drowned and it looked like an accident? Because Alyssa had those thoughts, like she's had those thoughts probably. I mean, if you look her up or the old MySpace space or whenever she would post stuff, she'd be like, oh, pastime killing people or I just want to see what it feels like. I mean, that was in her diary. Patty later filed a wrongful death lawsuit against Alyssa's grandparents and was awarded $400,000. Alyssa has pursued appeals in her own case, but all have failed. She is currently incarcerated in the Chillicothe Correctional Center in Chillicothe, Missouri. She may one day be paroled for the murder charge, but then she will still have to serve the 30-year sentence for armed criminal action. Caitlin's experience with Alyssa is part of the reason why she would ultimately choose to pursue a career in criminal justice. When I grew up in that type of system, as well as Alyssa, because it, it goes to show you that I grew up the same way, if not, you know, like whether or not she was worse or I was worse or whatever. I went to the system. My grandma got custody of us as well. But she chose like the different route where she was like, I'm going to kill and hurt somebody. Rather, I was like, I'm going to use this because I have an understanding for it. Well, a huge thank you to Kaylin for being our first degree for this episode. If you're listening and you have a story to tell, you can email us hello at the first degree podcast.com. Follow us on Instagram at the first degree at Alexis Linkletter at Billy Jensen at Jack Vanek. Join our Facebook group. We're talking true crime all the time and stick around tomorrow because we're going to have a brand new episode of Killing Time right in your feed. And remember, only you can prevent serial killers and keep your friends close. But not that close. <laughs> Happy Hedgehog Day. Hedgehog. Go down a hedgehog hole. Shout out to Jared Monaco for scoring original music for The First Degree, producing by Caitlin Cleveland, writing by Haley Gray. Sources for this episode are the Explore With Us YouTube channel, which provide us a lot of today's information, as well as court records, the Jefferson City News Tribune, Associated Press, KRCG-TV, all this interesting New York Daily News, ABC News, Crime Watch Daily, Huffington Post, CBS News, St. Louis Post-Dispatch, St. Joseph's News Press, the Deseret, and as always, our first three guests is always our largest source. <laughs>